really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome once again to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby. I'm your host, David Lawrence, an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, well, I would love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast, and you can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So, as always, there was a ton of rugby this weekend. There's a lot of great stuff to talk about. Uh, so let's just jump right in, shall we? So as always, we start with our current updates, and it's a bit of a weird time here at the Scrum of the Earth headquarters. Uh, for starters, the school bus drivers in our town have gone on strike as of yesterday, Monday, which puts a lot of pressure on getting our son to and from school. Uh, there were three towns where a strike was being strongly considered. In one of them, they worked out a contract and signed it. In the other, the, uh, the drivers voted not to strike, quote, at the moment, unquote. But for us, it's full steam ahead with the strike. It's looking like a really tough week. Um, to make it even more fun, my partner just tested positive for COVID. Yay, how cool. You may have thought it was passe, but we're going retro and bringing it back. <laughs> but seriously, uh, you know, for fortunately, she basically just feels like she has a cold, so that's not too bad. My son and I have tested negative so far. My fear is testing positive at the end of this week, which would make me unavailable for a very high-profile event at work next week. My boss has basically said nobody is allowed to be sick that day. In any case, we're just trying to stay positive without testing positive, and to keep in mind, this too shall pass. Who said that anyway? I know it's a famous quote. Oh yeah, Gandalf, that was it. This too shall pass. I think I have that right. I'm pretty pretty sure. It's too good. It's too good. People have to know. Yes, Isa, it is definitely good news this week with Ruby Tui set to come here to the United States to play this summer. Quoting here from the Guardian, quote, the World Cup and Olympic gold-winning New Zealand winger Ruby Tui will play in the U.S. this summer in uh, Premier Rugby Sevens, the PR Sevens, a multi-tournament competition in which men's and women's teams compete for one trophy. Announcing the move, too, he said, quote, I've been a massive fan of Premier uh, Rugby Sevens and what they've done for women's rugby since they formed in 2021 in the United States, unquote. At 31, Tui is one of the biggest stars in world rugby, a member of the Black Ferns team who beat England to win uh, the 15-a-side World Cup in front of 42,000 fans in Auckland last November. She has recently taken time away from the game. Last week, she announced a new two-year deal with New Zealand Rugby Union, but also said she was, quote, taking an immediate sabbatical, unquote. On Tuesday, she added, quote, to help grow our game around the world, especially in a place like the U.S., is an opportunity I take very seriously. PR7s has an awesome model for their competition with equal pay and opportunity for men and women. I'm absolutely buzzing to play some sevens again, unquote. So Owen Scannell, the chief executive of PR7s, said, quote, having, uh, having Ruby come and compete in Premier uh, Rugby Sevens at the height of her playing career is an unprecedented historic moment for the sport of rugby and women's sports across the United States. Not only is Ruby a superstar on the field, but she's also one of the greatest ambassadors for rugby and most significant advocates for women's sports globally. She's already captured the attentions of millions, the attention of millions of fans around the world, and we can't wait for her to join our efforts to build the game in the U.S. Unquote. 
I am super excited for this. You know, last year in the PR sevens was a, a ton of fun. It was a great competition. And Owen Scandal, by the way, of course, was with my free jacks right at the beginning. Uh, he, he's the one who gave me a, an original Jersey signed by all the players. So everything is coming up rugby. So moving on to our thoughts of the week, and my thoughts this week are on the fallout from all the depressing developments in Welsh rugby this past year. So I've been hearing a lot in particular about Joe Hawkins leaving the Ospreys. Um, quoting here from Planet Rugby, quote, Wales centre Joe Hawkins said he is gutted that he will miss out on the Rugby World Cup after prioritising his development and financial security by agreeing to join Exeter Chiefs. The 20-year-old centre has released a statement on his social media accounts after he was deemed ineligible for Wales following his decision to sign with Exeter. He is set to join the Premiership side from Ospreys at the end of the season, and his five caps falls short of the 25 required by the Welsh Rugby Union for players playing outside Wales. After announcing his 54-man preliminary World Cup training, uh, should say training squad, Warren Gatlin commented on the situation and said that Hawkins was part of his future plans at Wales before he was deemed ineligible. Quote, we told him he was a big part of our future and definitely in the 23, uh, either in the midfield or at 10, Gatlin said. We are disappointed that he's made that decision. He feels at the moment that going to play club rugby in England will be good for his development, unquote. So the highly rated center insists that he had little choice as he had no contract offers on the table from Welsh regions and claims he was being underpaid. The statement on his social media accounts read, quote, Gaining my first cap for Wales in the Autumn Internationals was an incredibly proud day for my family and I, and continuing to wear the Welsh jersey in the Six Nations fulfilled a childhood dream of mine. Unfortunately, I've been deemed ineligible to play for Wales, and the opportunity to play in the World Cup is no longer a possibility. I wish the boys and staff the best of luck, and I'm truly gutted I can't share this journey with them. I want to acknowledge that by signing for the Exeter Chiefs, my first professional contract, I have fully prioritized my rugby career. I've done so with my professional development, personal development, and financial security in mind. The turbulent period in Welsh rugby, where, where there were no contracts on offer in Wales, put all out-of-contract players under pressure. Witnessing the number of players currently out of a job in Wales has reinforced my decision. Further, while I have spent the last three years playing professional rugby and later international rugby, I've been held to an academy contract, being significantly underpaid. He added, as a passionate rugby player, my ultimate goal is to fulfill my potential for both my club and country, despite this being put on hold for now. However, I'm very grateful and excited to focus on next season with my new club. I'm determined to work hard and achieve success with my new teammates at Sandy Park over the coming years, unquote. Uh, this whole situation stinks out loud. And for, I mean, for Joe Hawkins in particular, obviously the worst part is he's going to have to listen to the freaking Tomahawk chant like 13 times a year. Okay, that brings us to our reviews. There are quite a few of them in the URC where we're going to start this time. It was finally at long last time for the playoffs to get started. We had three cracking matchups and one great opportunity for Sharks to rebrand as Chum. We all got, 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 got it all started on Friday with Ulster hosting Mike Connacht. I thought back to my interview with Bernard Jackman when I asked him why people like myself support Connacht. And without missing a beat, he just said, hope. I loved that. And today, they'd won six of their last seven and had the likes of Bundyaki back in top form. And I decided to let my own sense of hope out of its usual little box for a bit of fresh air. It's been a weird season for Ulster, and despite their being favorites, I told myself it was a great day for an upset. To bolster my optimism, I saw that Frank Murphy was in the officiating crew, but was not the lead referee, so I was properly keyed up. Quote, an absolutely perfect night for rugby, unquote, said Ryle Nugent. Quote, a dry ball and no excuses for anyone, unquote. Love it. 
So I loved the ferocity Connick showed right on uh, on D right from the outset. The, though it looked like there might be a power differential just strength wise between these two squads. So we had a classic non-fight fight. Uh, um, I think you must have seen that. And soon after, just as I was thinking about how good Mike Lowry is, he got utterly smashed making a tackle and had to leave the field. Right as the first quarter drew to a close, Cooney booted one through for the first points of the game. And that's when we got a good shot of Sparky the Bear. Mascot alert. So it was just a couple minutes later that Jack Cardi tied things up. He was having not a great game up to that point. Maybe this would be the turning point. We'd see. So a brilliant little kick from Prendergast nabbed some serious territory for Connacht after the half hour market and quote, it looks like the NBA all-stars shouted the comps and no, no, it didn't. Got to say, John Cooney was spending a great deal of time complaining to Andrew Brace. Not a good look for him. And from my experience, petulant Cooney equals poor result for Ulster. Two more pens for my boys made it three to nine at the end of a trialless first half. Up nine points, Bundiaki butchered a pass to give away a golden opportunity right in front of the goal line. Both sides, I don't know, looking a bit nervous and sort of making dim-witted mistakes. The 64th minute was when we got our first try. Ulster finally breaking through and drawing back within two. And with the momentum shift, I was struggling to hold on to my hope. Things got super tense. It was Kieran Marmion tearing through Ulster defenders, a full-on blood mustache adorning his face, a penalty soon awarded to the visitors to the boos and jeers of the crowd. The comms disagreed with the call of offsides, but for me, they all missed a massive high tackle on Bundyaki anyway. So Cardi's ensuing kick made it 10 to 15 with just under five minutes left in the contest. I was looking at my barf bucket to just make sure it was nearby. I, I know this little segment is going a bit long, but side note, did anyone else get a load of the crowd? Every shot, like 70% of the people in the frame weren't actually watching. They were facing each other and chit-chatting and checking their phones. And just by their expressions and overall demeanor, it felt like nobody actually cared what was happening. Very strange. Another side note, a Connick player stayed down at one point and began desperately stretching his hamstrings. The medics came out and gave him one of those mystery vials. It's very, very Dungeons and Dragons. It's like, okay, here's your potion of extra healing. Get out there. What is in that thing? It's like a clear vial with clear liquid in it. Can I assume it's gin? Anyway, I was dying small deaths in my chair as Doak prepared a kick with under two minutes left. But then, holy smokes, clock in the red, Ulster driving, smashing their way forward within a meter of pay dirt. And it was my guys, Connacht, the perpetual underdogs attacking the breakdown, winning a penalty, the shrill double blast of the whistle, signaling the cacophony of derisive boos to rain down. Unbelievable. It was the visitors holding out with an all-time defensive stand, besting their favored Irish rivals and advancing to the unlikeliest of semifinals, the boys from Galway securing a 10-15 to win at the Kingspan and hope, well, it won the day. Amazing. Next up, Stormers. Welcome to the Bulls. I don't know what blow rugby has against these South African derbies, but once again, the first 20 minutes of this game just wasn't part of the replay. Just go ahead, start at 1952 or something like that. Thanks again, folks. Who needs 100% of these games? 75% is more than enough. Come on. Either way, Stormers already had a 10-0 lead, and the comms were saying Bulls couldn't do anything right when I tuned in. A yellow card not long after clearly didn't help them either. It was 17-7 entering the break, and I was have, really having a hard time getting into this one. So early in the second half, it was Johan Hossen being stretchered off after a grisly encounter. He didn't even do the obligatory like thumbs up as he was on his way off. Not a good sign. I really hope it wasn't as bad as it appeared. Yikes. 
So shortly after the three-quarter mark, it was 27-14 to 14 and still in the realm of possibilities for the underwhelming Bulls. But when the lead ballooned back to 16 with just about eight minutes left, the writing appeared to be on the wall. Gotta say, the Stormers looked way off last time we saw them and a little off today. So I'm, I'm just losing my ability to, to believe in their making a run all the way to the finals again this year. The semis next next week look like much more of a daunting prospect than, than it would have even a month ago. So the visitors, they did smash one through right as the final hooter sounded, but it meant nothing other than the Stormers aren't as good this year as they were last season. 33-21 to 21 was the score at the end. And dared I yet again take some hope with me for next weekend? Yeah, maybe? So, Leinster, of course, we're at the Aviva to massacre, uh, uh, I mean, face off against Sharks. And while Sharks were definitely missing some key personnel, I was still surprised to see Leo Cullen had made nine changes from his starting 15 just last week. Of course, I mean, that squad, they have more depth than the Mariana Trench. And I think I might have just channeled down Stanford. So, not going to lie, I was a bit disappointed to see Craig Evans getting the nod for lead official while Holly Davidson was among the assistants, but there you are. Nothing against him. Uh, he's good, but I just think she's better. Either way, I had a hard time seeing any but the most obvious outcome unfolding today. It looked like a really, really low turnout in the stadium, by the way. Are even Leinster fans bored of Leinster? To be fair, I noticed there's about a 33,000 seat difference between this cavernous venue and the RDS where they usually are. So, you know, maybe this was a good URC turnout, if not a good Ireland turnout. If I need to be set straight on this, please do so. Just get in touch and sort me out. Anyway, it was Sharks scoring first, but Leinster tied it up quickly and saw Malpimpi going to this, uh, the sin bin at the same time. I was already looking around me to see where my game over stamp had gone. Two more quick tries for the hosts made it 21 to 5 at the half hour mark. That was also your score at the break as well. Leinster in full control as always. During what seemed to be the longest second half in the history of rugby, I definitely fell asleep or maybe went into a small coma at one point, figuratively at least, but the Leinster SUV was fully on cruise control. It was 35 to 5 with just a, a precious few moments left. And that's how it would wrap up. I mean, Sharks had absolutely nothing after that one early spark, a poor showing by them, another boring exhibition for the home side. I'm a little worried how anticlimactic it will be seeing them steamrolling their next two victims on the way to a clear and obvious league championship, but that's where we're at this year. Snore! I mean, hey, I, I guess this is maybe an opportunity to hold on some hope. We'll see. Next, Glasgow. We're hosting Munster at Scottsdale. And they mentioned at the top, this is the round both these teams lost in last year. This was like special and important just for both of these clubs. I was very worried that Peter O'Mahony might get away with an actual homicide tonight. Munster's squad looked loaded, and the comms said, quote, this is a true rugby rivalry, one defined not by geography, but history, unquote. I was psyched. Of course, not the greatest game. It took until the 22nd minute about there for Fekitoa to score the first try of the night. Things quickly looked grim for the Warriors. Munster really appearing to take control while Glasgow seemed to be just spinning their wheels, I guess. A weird old contest. I actually decided not to take any more notes because it was all a bit depressing. If you do want to hear more about it, I'm happy to say that I'm going to be a guest on the Scottish Rugby Podcast this very week. I have a feeling we'll be doing a bit of a deep dive on this one. So for our purposes here, though, it was a pretty thorough victory for Munster. Ending the Warriors' fabulous streak in an ugly, low-scoring affair, it was 5-14 to 14 at the end. Okay, swooping all the way down to the Southern Hemisphere for Super Rugby Pacific, Highlanders were back in Dunedin to face the Chiefs. And you know what? Sometimes you just have to laugh. 
So the comms started the game by mentioning that the Highlanders are the lowest scoring team in Super Rugby Pacific in the first 20 minutes. So what happens? They get an early try from DeGroote. They're up 7-0 at the 20-minute mark at, I, I swear this is true, 20 minutes and one second. It was the Chiefs answering, then piling on two more literally within seven minutes after a lovely start, presto, Highlanders were down 14 before a half hour had gone by. And I did manage to find the game over stamp at that point, and I got it nicely inked up. Highlanders can't seem to get things right this year. They, they'll have a sweet little breakaway, but then nobody in support. Or they'll kick it out on the full, or knock it on right at the goal line, or fail to roll away in the middle of a promising drive. It's just a constant comedy of errors out there. Chiefs, on the other hand, are all business. Today, Damian McKenzie went over a 1,000 points for his team as he led them to a victory as thorough as it was predictable. Another smackdown on the road, smashing my guys 28-52 to 52 by the end. With Aaron Smith set to depart after this season, will things actually get even worse? Why they with this team right now? So, the Fiji and Drua were back in Suva to welcome the Hurricanes. Would the biggest home field advantage in all of professional sports be enough to overcome an angry Kane squad? So as usual, it looked hot as hell, and it suddenly struck me. Fans in the UK, when it's raining, they wear rain gear, but don't really bring umbrellas. But in Suva, where it was bright, sunny, and close to 90 degrees by my reckoning, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of umbrellas. It's just funny that on a given weekend, a bunch of umbrellas are, are used far more for not their purpose than for their purpose. Maybe it's just me. Okay, I'm rambling. Anyway, the noise was off the charts as always. Around the 18-minute mark, the Andrua got through for the first try of the match. It was a tight one. Both teams feeling the heat. By the way, a, a pod I listened to just yesterday mentioned, why did the Hurricanes wear black? <laughs> their black kits on this day? It was insane. Uh, so anyway, this was a super fun game. And after a freaking lovely try in the corner, it was 14-10, to 10, approaching 50 minutes. Man, I was in. Oh, in the, I don't know if it was a B plot or a C plot, Julian Savia was in for his 150th appearance with his squad. He'd also managed to brace by this point. I was obviously hoping he'd get the hat trick while Drew won out in the end anyway. So this one had it all tied 24 all as the Canes number five got his second yellow. He went full Jesse Peretti on it. And it was the home side's chance to potentially put it away with only three minutes left to play. An insane bank shot penalty goal gave the Drew the lead, and as they were awarded an attacking scrum with under a minute, it was a done deal. 27-24 to to the home team. The place went ballistic. Just so good. They really, 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 really need to figure out how to get all this team's home games at home. It's just night and day the difference. So, next up was Crusaders versus the Western Force. I'd been wondering if there, were, if there was a theme for this weekend, and so far the answer had been no, but in Christchurch, it was dog day. It seemed there was like a contest to bring your dog all kitted out in Crusaders gear. They gave us lots of shots of the various entrants before things kicked off. That was a brilliant move. So anyway, for the home team, Sam Whitelock was a late scratch, but it was Will Jordan coming back into the squad after about eight long months. The comms correctly said that was good news for all rugby fans. What a player. So... The force would draw first blood, but it only took a couple of minutes for the host to answer back with a try. As the first quarter uh, grew, uh, drew to an end, the force managed to hold a 5-6 to six lead. Would it last? Uh, no, no, the answer was no. And off, an easy, uh, off of an easy conversion by Mwanga to end the half, it was 24-6. to six. Thank you, uh, producers, by the way, for giving us the gorgeous shots of the skyline as the sun slowly went down during the intermission. I, for one, really appreciate that. I don't know if I've mentioned this, so like, 
the the rebroadcasts I watch, halftime is kind of a wasteland. Like you, sometimes they show highlights, but there's never commentary. You you can't hear what they're saying about the highlights while they show them. Sometimes they don't show highlights at all. Sometimes they just leave like the the sort of overall stadium wide camera on, so you see people coming out and like cleaning the field and doing stuff and but like nothing happens in this one somehow they knew they put the camera right at a spot where you can kind of see the pitch but the main shot was just of the skyline the sun going down and they knew you know it's 15 minutes of you just watching a sunset that is so much better than like ford and Coors light commercials thank you anyway crusaders they were totally dominant in the scrum after about 50 minutes they had won four scrum penalties to the force zero and it was already a bit of a laugher. It was 41 to, tw- uh, 41 to 6 at that point. With maybe a quarter hour to go, the comms exclaimed, that gets them into double figures as the four started down their first try of the night. It was 48 to 13 entering the final 10 minutes. Crusaders knocked on the door a couple times after that, but to no avail. So 48 to 13 was indeed the final tally. A good bounce back win for the reigning champions. Next up, the Blues versus Moana Pacifica. This was a fun one. Blues, of course, led in all the major categories, but Moana Pacifica snuck their way back, getting to 17-15 to 15 at half with all the momentum on their side. Sure enough, at the 50-minute mark, it was 17-22. to 22. Pretty intense, actually. So fast forward, though, it was 24-25 to 25 with a quarter hour left, a gem of a match. With less than a minute, it was Blues with a five-meter attacking scrum, and with a second yellow card to the visitors, this one was over. Sure enough, it was a penalty try to ice it 31 to 30 for the Blues. Really tough one for the guests. So, Reds versus Waratahs was up next. It was a lovely contest. By the way, this is a rivalry that's been going on since 1882. Amazing. This one was a classic I score than you score type of affair. It was knotted at 17 at halftime, but the Taz did start to find a little bit of separation during that third quarter of play in particular. Not going to lie. I was really enjoying this one, and I intentionally stopped taking notes. I meant to go back and add some later, and I forgot. So all I can really say is, Reds, they they really did fought, uh, fight hard, but Waratahs are finally starting to show some of the form that we were all told to expect at the beginning of the year. They prevailed on the road. It was 24-32 to 32 by the end. Sunday, it was Rebels versus the Brumbies once again. The replay didn't start until the 27-minute mark this time, but... This one looked hotly contested with the teams locked at 14 at that time. Soon after, the comms absolutely went to town on the ref. They just, they creamed him. They basically said he was terrible on live, like live television. It was a bit odd and frankly kind of mean. It was a comical ending to the half with the player carrying the ball after having his jersey ripped off, which I'd have guessed would be perfectly legal. But that ref, he blew his whistle and said, no, no, we can't have a player running around without a jersey which is something I've never heard before. It it was like slapstick comedy out there. Anyway, the 50-minute mark was when the seagull thingies started flocking in and out of the frame. Always a treat. I've really got to look up what you call those little mini seagulls in Melbourne. Yeah, I'll, I'll get right on that. Anyway, when I looked back, it was the comms yelling, Too hot to trot, Bobby V! Which is a thing. By the way, I love that they call... Robert Valentini, Bobby V. It's like he's, I don't know, like a, a minor character in Greece. Anyway, 10 minutes to go. It was Brumby's looking good, 19 to 33 at that point. But these rebels, when they're at home, they they do stuff. And with like five minutes remaining, they were absolutely trucking down the field and maybe four meters away, but it was to no avail. The rebels putting up the bravest of fights, but couldn't quite get it done. It was 26 to 33, the final tally for the round. Okay, the Gallagher Premiership, 
this was, you know, one of the weirdest weekends for the Prem, for sure. By the way, they really could have done a better job marketing it as the race for eighth, as there were still a couple of chips yet to fall into place that would affect other things for next year. We'll get onto that in a sec. So in our opening match, it was Bath hosting Saracens. Unsurprisingly, Saracens weren't interested in fielding anything approaching a full-noise squad. The comms said, well, they're not so much sending the kids as the kids' kids. And sure, that, that made sense to me. So right around the 12-minute mark, it was the Dungeon Master, Tom Dunn, getting the try off a driving mall. And look, Bath had a lead. Who knows? Maybe I imagined it because by halftime, it was the grandkids with a 21-24 to lead. But you got to hand it to the home fans. They had packed the place, and they were as loud as I've heard them all year long. Great showing by them. An explosion by the home team in the second half saw things flip massively. With just 10 minutes left, suddenly it was 49-29. to Yowzers! So the real prize on the line was placement in the European Cups for next year. And with the battle between Bath and Gloucester coming down to points differential, the comms informed us Bath are three points away from a championship cup slot. Gotta love the added drama, right? So side note, the downside of having all the games at the same time on the Saturday, they assume that you can only be watching one, so they constantly give you updates on the others. Uh, So as it stood, Bath and Bristol were locked for the eighth uh, prem spot, And as Saracens got the ball with the clock in the red, they could have kicked it out. But instead, a super like rookie move led to an Ollie Lawrence intercept and try right at the end. In simply what must have been Bath's biggest margin of victory of the year, or maybe the century, they won 61 to 29, putting them two points up on Bristol Bears. More on that in just a moment. Bristol Bears, they were at home for Gloucester. That one was next to my radar. As we joined this this contest very late, the comms were also jumping out of their skins with a seesawing advantage in terms of EPCR qualification. At 36 to 14, it was a nightmare scenario for the Bears. Piotau getting a yellow for an intentional knock-on, and with the penalty try awarded, it was unbelievably a 36 to 21 victory that ultimately spelled their losing out on qualification for the Heineken Cup. The players just visibly devastated. A really tough year for Bristol this year. So in Kind of less significant action. Leicester, they welcomed Harlequins to Welford Road. Both teams looked like it was all to play for. Huge energy and huge attitudes as the match started. Really great to see. As Quinns pulled ahead, the comms inexplicably, at least for me, said, well, it's a frustrated and in some cases feral crowd on hand. (laughs) I have no idea what a feral crowd is. Uh, And the nominations for the most bizarre commentary are definitely open for your suggestions. So with a quarter hour to go, it was 10 to 17. There was a weird, well we don't have to win versus, well, it doesn't really help us to win vibe. And when there was another stoppage for a sort of a, a quasi injury, the life force just left the stadium entirely. The place became a library to make it worse. When Ian Tempest woke up from his torpor, he was just like, okay, let's move on. The TMO jumped in and said, wait, 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 wait. I have a whole thing you need to look at. If you were there, you could have gone and gotten a beer during the time it took them to say play on. It was definitely a bit of a weird one, but with Marcus Smith getting his team a 10-point lead as we entered the final 10 minutes, they had all the big mo. However, this one got really good. I have to admit, Tigers found their way downfield, decided to go for the corner rather than grabbing the easiest of threes, and it would work perfectly. And I realized 45,859, according to the comms, people were on hand. I mean, the place looked jammed. Quote, Leicester players staring deep into their souls, unquote, said the comms as we went past 80 uh, 80 minutes with Tigers in possession, but even after a random yellow to Marler, which almost looked scripted. Did you notice that? It was really weird. 
17 to 20 was perhaps the bad news loss to end the season and spoil a seven game winning streak. I do not feel good about Leicester going into the teeny tiny prem playoffs. So anyway, London Irish, they were back in the guitar for Exeter and looking at the lineups at the top, I was suddenly filled with dread, wondering if I, if I had called Henry Arundel, Harry Arundel previously. Anyway, don't go back and listen. I'm sure I got it right. Uh, the first half was tight. The team's tied at seven going into the break, and that held true long into the second period, a game truly on the fence between boring and tense. 17 to 14 was the final score. The Exiles looked like they just won a World Cup at the end. Not sure how or why, but there was a ton of excitement at the Gatach. And if you think I'm just trying to fit one more Gatach reference in, well, you know me way too well. Sale. They were back home in Printerland to take on the Newcastle Falcons. Sharks finally took a one-try lead, 14-7, at the 25-minute mark. Playing through an insistent misty rain, Sale found themselves up 21-7 at the break. And in the second half, things got even worse for the visitors, giving away a yellow card and trailing 42-7. With the clock past the 70-minute mark, Sale would romp over their clearly giving up guests 54 to 12 when this one ended an odd way to end a very odd regular season in a very odd league. Meanwhile, in France, the top 14 is getting to the business end of the season, though I did the math and there was still a ton of room for things to move around before the top six were set in stone. The match I was most looking forward to this weekend was Toulouse versus Bordeaux-Begla, and it was a super fun one. Toulouse were, of course, top of the table while my Border Beagles were holding on to the fourth spot, but the differences would become clear in the second half. The first 40 were as tight as could be until the home team scored right on the cusp of the break. It was a compelling 21-17 at that point. From then on, though, ooh, it was all Toulouse, ripping off 10 unanswered, including an otherworldly slashing try by DuPont, Oh my God, that guy. A scary moment past 70 minutes when Jalibert went down in a great deal of pain with an unidentifiable injury. Like at one point he was holding his, um, like his quad and then his thigh, then his knee, and then his sort of shoulder and elbow. He might have six injuries right now. Potentially terrible news for Bordeaux and for France, uh, but we'll have to see how that pans out. Hopefully he's doing okay. The visitors... Uh, couldn't find even a single point after the break. Toulouse won in convincing fashion. I'm pretty sure guaranteeing themselves a place among the top two teams and therefore earning a rest come playoff time. Final score, 31-17. to 17. Clermont versus Stade Francais was a good old-fashioned double-up. The home team winning 32-16. to 16. Poe completely obliterated cast somehow to the tune of 40-3. to 3. Holy cow. Montpellier, they dropped one at home to breathe by just a single point, 26 to 27. Rassing were back to their schizophrenic ways, hammering Bayonne from top to bottom, getting themselves a big 55 to 14 win when they really needed one. Lyon versus Perpignan was a good one. Lyon winning a high scoring match, 41 to 31. And then finally, it was Toulon versus La Rochelle. It was an exciting way to finish off this round. Another really tight contest most of the way with Toulon kind of kind of hanging around, just always keeping themselves between five and eight points down. Late on, however, La Rochelle's dominance started to show through big time. Despite a yellow card to Hestoy, of all people, they still came away road victors 8-23, to much to the vociferous disappointment of the fans in the Orange Velodrome. Okay, swinging back home for Major League Rugby, <laughs> By the way, have you noticed people either say Major League Rugby or they say the MLR? Like that would be the Major League Rugby. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I just love it. I insist on calling it the MLR, even though it doesn't make sense. It's like, uh, you know, the that that company called the Paper Store. 
like a, they opened up a new location and I was like, oh, look, it's uh, the paper store. Anyway, Atlanta, they were back at the gorilla cage for the second city puppies. They came away easy victors in that one, 27 to 12 by the end. Dallas had for me a winnable game at home against DC, but the final result was a penalty kick to a try. So I don't know, 120 or 130 years ago, this would have gone the Jackals' way, but in 2023, it was another another loss, 3-7, to seven, the disappointing final tally in that one. Then we had Utah looking to prove a point as they welcomed San Diego, but the Legion were too much for them, even on the road. 16-26 to 26 was their total. The New York Estheticians spanked visiting NOLA. They are so up and down this year, it's weird. Final score in Mount Vernon was 54-19. to 19. Meanwhile, my beloved Free Jacks got a well-deserved rest. Well, by that music, you'll of course know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. And this week, the award goes to Seamus Hurley Langton, Mr. Hurley Langton, you made the difference for my conic this weekend, bringing home a huge upset and looking good doing it, earning yourself player of the match accolades along the way. You led your team in clean breaks and defenders beaten, as well as tackles with a 100% tackle rate to boot for a guy whose picture literally doesn't appear in the conic lineup on the official URC website. You were the key to an enormous victory. So congratulations to you. You are this week's diamond in the ruck. Well done, sir. Okay, that brings us to our updates and previews. We've got double playoff offerings, so it's going to be an awesome weekend. The URC is down to the semifinals and will feature Stormers staying at home to welcome Connacht, a very tough matchup on paper, followed by Leinster setting the thresher to full throttle for visiting Munster. Either road team winning would be a massive upset, uh, upset, so I am hoping for both. The Premiership, of course, goes straight to semifinals as well. This year, Saracens will bring back their thoroughly rested monster squad to face the Northampton Saints and Sail Sharks get a home fixture against the reigning champs, the Leicester Tigers. The top 14 is on to its penultimate round this week, uh, bringing us Perpignan versus Toulouse, Bordeaux Begle versus Poe, Bayonne versus Clermont, Montpellier versus La Rochelle, Brive versus Cass, Racing 92 versus Toulon, and finally, on Sunday, Stade Francais versus Lyon. Down in Super Rugby Pacific, Friday features the Chiefs versus the Reds and the Western Force versus the Fijian Drua, while on Saturday, It'll be the Hurricanes versus Moana Pacifica, Crusaders versus Blues. Oh, my God, that's going to be so good. Waratahs versus the Rebels. And then technically on Sunday, where I am, it's Brumbies versus Highlanders. Yikes. So the MLR also has a full docket, starting with the lowly Toronto Arrows at home for Rugby ATL. Then it's Nola licking their wounds and hoping to take advantage of San Diego being on an extended road trip. Good luck. Uh, We've got a major showdown as Houston welcomes Seattle. Dallas are back at home to face Utah. That will be a challenge for sure. D.C. host my Free Jacks. Will we see BW back in the game day 23? And then finally, Chicago are back at the seat geek for the New York Vocational Guidance Counselors. Well... My friends, that does it for another week 
I'm a little sad. Three of these great competitions are starting to wrap up for the year. However, this is also when things get really, really, really good. So, as I said at the top, let's all focus on the positive. So, as always, thanks again for coming along. To all of you across the globe, cheers. Talk to you soon. And be well.